Hello, and welcome back to the Homegrown Horticulture Podcast. On today's episode, Pine Needle Scale and the Walnut Apocalypse. The Homegrown Horticulture Podcast is specifically for the Intermountain West, an area often forgotten about by national gardening companies and even national gardening magazines. We cover anything from home gardening to insect pests and diseases to what might be best to grow in your yard. We really appreciate you listening, and now on with the program. On today's episode, we have Savannah Peterson, who is a Utah State University Extension horticulturist. She works part-time in the Utah County office. We've been experiencing a very high volume of calls about walnut trees with branches dying and just trees looking really unhealthy. Savannah's been looking into this. So Savannah, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Appreciate you being here. So what have you been finding out about the walnut trees? Unfortunately, just based on what um, owners have been telling us, it seems like the most likely culprit is something called thousand canker's disease, which is common with a lot of kinds of walnuts. Why do you suspect thousand canker's disease is back, especially this year? One problem is when trees get stressed, like with, for example, drought stress, like we've been having over the past few years, they're much more susceptible to diseases. This could have been popping around, but it might be that there's a higher volume because there are more trees that are stressed. So how's the thousand cankers disease spread? So thousand cankers disease actually starts with a small insect called the walnut twig beetle. They're teeny tiny dark red brown beetles that look like a very small grain of rice. They're kind of bark beetles. So what that means is usually they bore into a tree from the outer bark and get into the phloem. Just for anybody who doesn't know, the phloem is what carries the sugars and nutrients around a plant. So if that gets severely damaged, whole sections of a tree can essentially starve. And if the damage is bad enough, the tree can die completely, which is what this bark beetle has reputation for. Outside of just the bark beetle doing physical damage to the tree, it's also a vector for a fungus called geosmithia morbida, but it's a fungus that causes thousand cankers disease. So thousand cankers has been, like I said earlier, around for quite a while. What does the damage look like in a walnut tree when it contracts the disease? Unfortunately, a lot of diseases have similar symptoms, but um, some things to look for early on are foliage yellowing and wilting, some thinning of leaves, limb dieback can show up, later on, and then some more canopy dieback. So how long does it actually, once the disease is contracted, for a tree to show symptoms? It can take up to two years. The disease is kind of sneaky and gets a foothold. So the beetles are doing their damage, and then the fungus is spreading. And then about two years later, you'll start to see yellowing. And by that time, it's way too late. And then it can kill the tree after about another two to three years. So once the disease has shown up, there's nothing that can really be done. No, which is a bummer. Um, I think people's gut reaction when you hear about beetles or other insects causing damage is to reach for a pesticide. But that's not an effective option here and a waste of money because even if you do kill the beetles, the disease is still rampant and has already done enough damage that it's not going to recover. And so there is not a treatment that you can actually get the fungus out of the tree with. No, I haven't seen any fungicides that are very effective or that have been heavily tested. Uh, So that's not a viable option either. I think the best bet is to just cut it down and start over. 
unfortunately. So if you want to try to prevent thousand cankers, because that seems to be the only option, what would you recommend? There's two really simple ways to do this. The first one is to actually just not move firewood from place to place, which doesn't seem like it would affect your landscape plants too much. But bark beetles of all kinds have a reputation of just getting into bark, obviously, and then people will cut firewood and move it to take it camping or something, and then that'll transmit the beetles to a new location. So if you are just very careful and don't do that, you won't introduce this kind of bark beetle to your home and landscape. So if you have walnuts at your home, what would be good to do to make sure those walnuts are as healthy as possible? Two big things. Make sure that your tree has adequate irrigation and also fertilize it when it needs to be. Those are just the two basics that'll keep it happy and healthy enough. It's kind of like humans and their immune system. The healthier you are, the better your chances are of fighting off an infection. What's the main species of walnut that's actually being impacted by thousand cankers? I believe black walnut. So black walnut. And then what's the susceptibility of English walnut? They are also known to be able to contract the disease, but it's much less likely. So if you're going to plant a walnut, that might be a safer bet. So anything else on thousand cankers? Man, I hope your trees don't get it. (laughs) There's really not much you can do. And so I'd like to transition over to the pine tree problems we've been seeing where there's a lot of Austrian, Scotch, and Mugol pines that have been turning yellow and dying. And there's, I suppose, a few different reasons. So Savannah, what do you suspect is causing these pine trees to turn yellow? Drought stress is always a possibility, but another problem that we've been seeing is scale insect called pine needle scale. Describe pine needle scale, what it does, maybe the life cycle. I always thought it was a fungus. It's not. It's just a weird-looking insect. When it's younger, it's pretty mobile and will just scoot around and chew on and (laughs) suck out the sap of pine needles. And then when it gets older, it's almost completely stationary, and it looks like a half of a mussel or a clamshell um, just glued onto whatever surface it's on. So you'd have to use a magnifying glass to really see that? Yeah, you would. If you get a severe infestation of the white pine needle scale, there's white and black pine needle scale. But of the white ones, it almost looks like your tree is covered in frost because they can get really dense. But it's hard to see the individual insects with a naked eye. So if people want to try to control pine needle scale, when's the best time to get the pine needle scale, I guess the new babies, for lack of a better term, are mobile? Pine needle scale has life cycle that has two generations per year. So the first one usually shows up in early spring and the second one in mid to late summer. It's important that you try to treat pine needle scale before they turn into adults because that shell is hard to penetrate with chemicals. So it's easier to do when they're soft-bodied juveniles. So what are those mobile juveniles called, besides maybe teenagers? Yeah, nice. They're the crawler stage, which is pretty easy to remember. (laughs) The crawler stage? I I made a dad joke. So how would you monitor for the crawler stage? One pretty effective and inexpensive way to do it is just using double-sided sticky tape on branches. You want to try to stick it pretty close to green foliage so that they'll be by a food source. And then they'll crawl over it, get stuck. You can go out about twice a week to see what kind of population you have. You'll have to use a magnifying glass to see if they're there, but you'll at least have a better idea of if they are there and what kind of a problem they'll be later. 
So after you've monitored for the crawlers, what would be the options for trying to control these? And before we get into chemicals, what would you recommend as far as non-chemical methods? Try to keep your trees as healthy as possible. And then another kind of interesting thing is to try to promote natural predator populations. One thing that'll eat them is ladybugs. And so if you can see ladybug larvae around, I don't know, try not to spray pesticide on them, you know. So once you've found those crawlers, though, you know you have the scale in the tree. And because the scale can be so problematic, what are some reduced risk options that you might suggest to help control the crawlers? Those would be things like insecticidal soaps or horticultural oils, something like neem oil. Those aren't as harsh as other pesticides. And when would you spray these? You want to try your best to make sure that you get them in the crawler stage because once they form that hard shell, it's a lot harder for chemicals to penetrate in and do their job. So do you have a preference given that both soaps and oils are fairly available of which one to use? Yeah, I think your best bet there would be insecticidal soaps. Uh, Horticultural oils are an option and they're pretty effective, but they can run the risk of discoloring your trees, which is usually cosmetic, but it could do a little bit more damage too. So next, let's say we missed the crawler stage. What are some options? Some things that'll pack a little bit more of a punch to be able to get the adults that insecticidal soaps might not be able to are 7 and permethrin. They're registered for treating scale, but they might not catch quite all of the population. They can definitely slow it down. If you need something even stronger than that, there's a systemic called dinotefurin. One brand of it is Safari. Another one that's a little easier to get a hold of for homeowners is the ortho tree and shrub insect control. It's found a lot of places. You can even get it on Amazon and it's available as a liquid or a granular. So there's whichever one you prefer. (laughs) And when is the best time of year to use that systemic? You want to do it in early spring. I mean, it's especially effective if you can still get it in the crawler stage, but you want to do it before the population gets out of control. So we're getting toward the end of the podcast, and I want to end it on a happier note than what we've been talking about. So Savannah, you've been out taking pictures of flowers and landscapes for social media for extension. You ran into a flower you especially liked. I did. I love it. It's called Sea Thrift, or Sea Pinks is the other name. It's adorable. It looks like a little clump of grass. The technical term is a basil rosette. And then these long flower stalks up to a teeny tiny head It looks like a pom-pom almost of usually pink flowers. There are some cultivars that are white too, but they're great. They grow really well in Utah, partly because of their name, Sea Thrift. They are native to coastal regions, which means they are extremely salt tolerant. They also have a deep taproot, which means they're drought tolerant, which both of those are great for our area. Deer hate them, so if that's a problem in your yard, this is a plant that can handle all three of those. So we'll post on the Homegrown Horticulture website a picture of the sea pinks, and it's I've grown this one in the past, and I really like it. So what's the longevity of it when it's planted in the yard? It depends on the conditions. Four to five years, if you have heavy clay soil or your soil is a little over-fertilized or too wet too often, they will last much less time. But the average is about four to five years. Well, excellent. Thank you. Thank you for being on the podcast. 
The Homegrown Horticulture Podcast is a production of Utah State University Extension. We really appreciate you listening. Show music is composed by Savannah Peterson, the one and only guest today. We really appreciate her for doing that. We'll talk to you next time.